Today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we're going to be. Uh, verses 1 to 11. And kind of giving you a break from a chapter at a time today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 to 11. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me. The words will be on the screen and I just uh, appreciate you following along. Uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word and would like one, please don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'd love to be able to uh, give you one and uh, no cost. And uh, Anyway, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the day. We thank you so much for the many blessings that you've given to us. And we thank you for your love and kindness and generosity here today. Father, we know that um, we're here because of you. And Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us all that you are doing for us and will continue to do. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, give us the grace that is necessary today to hear a message from you. Father, I pray that you would um, speak to us in a way that only you can. I thank you for uh, this church. I thank you for their love for you their love for this community. Uh, I thank you for the leadership that we have, people who are willing to volunteer of their time and their resources to make this possible. For our worship team, our sound team, I, I thank you for Ed and Sherry Murphy who, who work with our children and children's church each and every Sunday. What a great work they do. for Lori and her ministry to the coffee bar. Father, I, um, I could be up here all day just thanking people and mentioning people's names, but Father, we know that you are aware of all that they do. Father, we serve and we love, we are here today because you first loved us. You gave, you sacrificed, you forgave. So Lord, if you would, allow us this moment to worship you in spirit and in truth. Allow for us this moment to hear a word from you. I recognize, Lord, that I have a part in that. And so if you would, forgive me of my sin and cleanse me of the unrighteousness that is in my life and give me the grace that is necessary, that is needed to preach your word in a way that bring honor and glory to your name, in a way that bring sinners to repentance and believers into a time of renewal and their relationship with you. If there's someone here today, Lord, we pray that today would be the day of their salvation a day where they admit that they are a sinner, believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of life. For the believer that's here today, Lord, I pray that you would just speak to them in a mighty way, in a way that only you can, that you would penetrate their heart, that you would sanctify their thinking, that you would correct their desires, that you would allow for them this moment, this opportunity to hear a word from you and respond. Lord Jesus, we love you. 
and pray all these things in your name. And all of God's people said, amen. You know, uh, just on that note of Children's Church, you know, since uh, Amy has been here, our children's ministry has just blown up. And uh, we do a lot of different things for the kids. And we got a lot of things planned for Easter and all that good stuff. But each and every week, we do a children's church. And Ed and Sherry Murphy just do a phenomenal job with that. And I mean, they do a phenomenal job. My kids come home, they talk about what they're learning. And, and I'm always just amazed by it. You know, it's, a, it's just, we are very fortunate, very blessed to have them in that capacity, leading, serving. And, and you know, they want more time with your kid. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's, and my kids are back there, so that's pretty impressive, you know what I mean? And so, uh, that's just, I mean, we are just so fortunate, so blessed to have, I mean, our children's ministry just does a phenomenal job from the head to the toe. I mean, from top to bottom, they just do a phenomenal job. And, uh, you know, if your kid's not back there and they, they are curious, I would just, uh, you know, encourage you to give them that opportunity. Today, we're talking about lawsuits among believers. And, uh, you know, this is a, an interesting conversation in the middle of First Corinthians, kind of like a, it almost seems like it's in a weird spot, but I think Paul has a good reason to put it where he did and why he chose to mention it, where he chose to, to insert it, you know. There are some things, though, that like, you know, that should just be left unsaid, you know. There are some things that shouldn't be spoken. You know, if, husbands, if your wife asks you if you like her outfit and you don't, that's, that's kind of low-hanging fruit, you know, that's, just, that's low-hanging fruit. We can do better. We can do better than that today. If your pastor is wearing a jacket that <laughs> looks like something from Caddyshack, you know, <laughs> if you live in St. Joe, and you're not a Kansas City Chiefs fan, you might want to keep that to yourself, you know. <laughs> if you live in California and you're a Republican, you may want to keep that to yourself. <laughs> if you live in Texas and you're a Democrat, you might want to keep that to yourself, you know. There are <laughs> some, again, keep that to your, no, I'm just, uh, not everything needs to be said, you know. Just because you're thinking it up here, doesn't mean that you need to verbalize it, right? Not everything needs to be spoken. You know, some things are just better left unsaid, you know? What Paul is saying to the church in Corinth is not every argument that the church has needs outside attention. What Paul is saying, what Paul isn't saying here is that every conflict that the church has is fit to be handled inside of the church either. You know, the, for too long churches have, Baptist churches included, have been quiet on things they should have never been quiet about. Uh, there are some things that happen inside of a church or a ministry that it should absolutely be seen inside of a courtroom, inside of the public eye. There are some things, friends, that are fit to go into a courtroom. But not everything. I mean, but uh, you look at today... And where we're at today, and how the church is set up, how it's structured, even nonprofits. I mean, not, are we set up to handle conflict in a way that would actually be advantageous for believers? I mean, if there's a legitimate conflict, do we have any type of system that's set up for that? 
I don't think so. Not well. So there are some things that should absolutely, we should seek legal counsel over. We should protect ourselves. We should protect other people. There are those things. There are those situations. But what Paul is talking about today, what Paul's point is that not everything needs to be made public. Not everything needs to be brought out into the public eye. Not everything needs to be taken to the court. Not everything is a lawsuit. In particular, Paul says that God can be glorified if these conflicts are handled in the right way and in the right time, that God can be honored and God should be honored in these situations. Let's look at verse one. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for the judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Steve Um, Dr. Steve Um, says that the first of these four verses, Paul is asking the church in Corinth to consider their identity in Christ. As a child of God, we are called to live a life that is set apart, to be holy. The call to Christ's likeness is not just when you are getting your way, but even when you are being wronged. I know for some of us, that's a hard word this morning, but it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. We should be in the business of holiness. We should be in the business of not getting our way. Your way stinks, friends. I mean, God saved you from your way. I mean, you are dead in your trespasses and sin on your way. You are on your way to hell on your way. Friends, let's just face it. Your way stinks. It stinks. If you always get your way, friends, let me tell you something. That's a bad life to live. It's a way of unrighteousness. It's a, it's a way that everybody takes. It leads to destruction. God saved you from your way. If you think your way is great and perfect, then while you're here, to teach other people what it means to be holy, to be set apart, you have it all figured out, you don't need Jesus. Being a Christian is literally picking up your cross daily and dying to yourself daily. It's not getting your way. We should be in the business of being wronged. We should be in the business of accepting blame. We should be in the business of not getting our way. In the middle of everything, friends, there are times when you're going to be shipwrecked, left for dead. Because sometimes God uses people like that. God uses those who have been wronged. He uses people that have been hurt. He uses people who are set apart, holy, righteous, willing to be wronged. Paul is saying here in this verse that, why are you even tempted? I mean, 
to take these matters to a secular court, to a secular judge. Why, are you, why is this even a temptation in these small matters? Again, not everything has to be made a bigger deal than it is. Sometimes we must simply turn the other cheek. Sometimes there's a, a greater lesson to be learned than for other people to know that you are right and they are wrong. As children of God, we are not called to live a life that is all about us. We are called to live a higher calling. We are called to holiness. If you don't believe me, let's look at the next couple of verses. Verse 2. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more are the things of this life? <laughs> That's pretty enlightening, is it not? Friends, as believers and followers of Jesus, we are co-heirs with Christ, children of God. Friend, when God sends his son Jesus to this earth at the end of time, let me tell you, friends, there is going to be an opportunity for you to experience ultimate justice. As co-heirs with Christ, we're not going to be worried about the wrongs that took place on this earth, friends. Paul is asking the church to think about the end, to think with the end in mind. Paul is saying to the church here, who is more fit to handle the conflicts inside of the church? Who's going to be more just? Who's going to be more qualified? Who's going to be more understanding? Who's going to be more favorable? Who is going to be more likely to honor God with their decision and with their ruling? The church or the public? I know we can't look back 2,000 years ago, but just think about your lifetime, friends. Think about what you've seen, what you've experienced. How many times... Have you seen someone convicted of a crime they never committed? DNA tests come back and prove that they were wrongly convicted? How many times have you seen a man with this color of skin get 10 years and a man with that color of skin get probation? The church should be known for its justice. It should be known for how they care for their own. It should be known for how it handles conflict. Is it? Is it? Ever been online and read an article or watched a video and had somebody bash the church? Have a a video that ridicules a pastor or a church leader. Friends, don't allow for secular media to compromise your faith and conviction. I mean, there are a lot of people who do not like the church and they come at their agenda with a strong bias against what is happening in this place and they will say anything and do anything to get other people to believe this is a bunch of hypocrites people that have not they don't love one another they don't care about each other they friends I've been a part of a lot of churches how about you I mean 
all in all, do people not love each other? Do they not care for one another? Do the people inside of a church not get on their knees and pray for each other when they're sick or when their child is addicted to drugs or I mean when you're struggling in sin do you not have a brother or sister in Christ to be able to pray for you and uplift you and to hold you accountable do you not have people in this church that love your children to take the time out of their week to teach them God's word? Do you not have people each week on Wednesday night come here in the middle of the day and make you dinner? Has there been business meetings where people raise their voice? You go to enough committee meetings and you're going to find people yelling at each other eventually. Why is that? Is it because they hate the person across the table? Of course not. It's because they're passionate. They care. They've invested years of their life in this ministry, this church. They care. And just like any other family, sometimes their emotions get the best of them. They say something that they shouldn't say. They do something they shouldn't do. They act in a way that they shouldn't act. Does that mean they don't love one another? Have you never said anything to your brother, to your sister, to your wife, to your parents that you later regret? And like, man, why did I say that? I got to go and apologize now. I mean, is that not the case in any family? In any church family as well, aren't there times when we say things that we shouldn't say? We do things that we shouldn't do. We act in ways that are immature and foolish. What do we do in those situations? Do we not forgive? Do we not forget? I think we do. I've seen it, friends. I've experienced it in my own life, time and time again. Where I've said something I shouldn't have said, I've done something I shouldn't have done. I've put, I mean, I suffer from foot and mouth disorder. I stick this thing in my mouth every chance I get. And I have to go back and say, you know what? I, I said something, I'm sorry. wrong with that we all do it it's all right what isn't all right if we take these situations and we make them a mountain when reality is they're just a simple molehill that just needs to be dealt with in a way that would bring God honor and glory and that we would bring one another closer to each other because we see that you know what we're not perfect we're human. We got flesh and blood. And we're willing to say, I'm sorry. Willing to forgive. We're willing to offer up a 
hand of forgiveness. Look at verse 4. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose life is scorned in the the church? Remember back in chapter 1, God uses the foolish of the world to shame the wise. I think what Paul is saying here is that one of the biggest fools in the church is smarter than the best lawyer in town. Something like that is what he's saying. One commentator I read this week said, if your family is fighting, then your family ought to handle its own business. If your church is fighting, it's the same situation. Just handle it. I mean, we don't need... If you're arguing, I mean, if your family is fighting, you got two brothers that are fighting within your home, do you call the neighbor and have them handle Or do you say, you know what, sit down at the table, let's talk about it. Let's deal with it. Unfortunately, I realize that in both of these situations, both the family and in the church, it's rarely the case. Sad when it's not though, right? I mean, how many times have you seen a family destroyed, ripped apart over internal conflict? How many times have you seen a church separated, split over a conflict of the color of the carpet or the paint on the walls or who inherits this? Who inherits that? You got this and I got... You know how many families I've seen in the course of my ministry, when a matriarch or a patriarch passes away and they fight and they bicker over stuff, <laughs> it's sad, is it not? The matriarch, the patriarch fought for years to keep that family together, and the moment they're gone, they're fighting over. Sometimes we fight over the, the dumbest things, friends, the dumbest things. Like, why do we, is, is life not more important? Is our relationship not more important than materialism, property, money? Is not your relationship with one another more important than the color of this carpet, the paint on that wall, the methods that we use to reach the people in this community? We're going to fight and we're going to split over methods, not over theology, but over methods. You're going to allow what type of Bible study we have in a church to dictate your relationship with a fellow believer? Really? That's how superficial this is to you? I was in seminary, I had a professor who brought in a trial lawyer for a week and uh, he taught us about all kinds of different things. But one of the things he said that I'll never forget, he said, every, every judge that I've seen, that I've known, hates when a case with a church lands on his desk. He hates it. She hates it. I mentioned at the start of this sermon that there are times and situations when a There are situations that should be handled by a judge, but there are a lot of times, friends, that we can do better. Maybe this is done completely outside of the house. Maybe it's done inside the house. Maybe there's a nonprofit that can can help a church figure out these situations. 
Maybe we, I, I, maybe we just find a better, more creative way than saying, you know what, let's sue each other. That's the answer. Let's take what's not ours. Maybe we need to be a little bit more understanding, a little bit more forgiving. For Paul, this was clearly a, a church family issue that should have never ended up in court. It was superficial. Menial. As we look at verses 5 to 10, we will see that Paul is questioning their identity in Christ because of their behavior in this matter. Look at verse 5. I say this to shame you. Is it possible there is nobody among you who is wise enough to judge a dispute before or between believers? We don't know the matter at hand here. I mean, just, it's not mentioned. Maybe some of you might think it's a, the situation that was happening in the pr previous chapter. Maybe it's something completely different. We don't know. But obviously, clearly, it's something that shouldn't be dealt with outside of the walls of that church. It, it was not that big of a deal. It was a small issue that somebody within the church in Corinth should have been able to provide a solution to said issue. But that didn't happen. And Paul is point is to shame them I mean he literally I mean this is sarcasm from Paul but maybe maybe they don't have anyone wise enough I mean maybe he's not being sarcastic we think of it as a sarcasm but maybe it's not I mean if you look back at chapter five the, the young man is having a relationship and an affair with his stepmother and what do they do they don't do anything about it they just let it continue on I mean, they don't have the intestinal fortitude there to say, hey, what you're doing is wrong. And here, they don't have the intestinal fortitude to, to, to handle matters inside the church. Even when there is conflict, they're like, hey, you just go out there and deal with it there. Let, let a secular judge deal with it. Let them handle it. They're willing to turn there, but they're not willing to deal with it in-house? Maybe, maybe, maybe he's not being sarcastic. Maybe there isn't anybody that's wise enough to handle said matters. Everything I studied this week about the Corinthian courtroom said that it wasn't a place where people sought justice though. It was a place where people took others to make themselves look good. Dr. Um, as I referenced earlier, said that it was a place where people go to move up in societal ranks. A place where you could establish your supremacy, your honor, your status, your position. Dr. Garland said that it was most likely a place where eager young men were looking to establish themselves and as a result were bringing these trivial cases against fellow Christians in hopes that they could establish their own position within the community and within the church. I mean, that's what the church is all about, is it not? Making yourself look good at the expense of others. But instead, verse 6, one brother takes another to court, and this is in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Paul says that instead of looking for opportunities to position yourself ahead of others, why not be defeated? Why not be wronged? Why not be cheated? It's a radical idea, is it not? Ever win an argument, though, and feel like you've lost more than you've won? 
Maybe you lost someone's respect. Maybe you lost a friend. Maybe you caused a loved one pain, emotional pain. Is it worth it? Is it gratifying? Not every competition, every conversation is a competition. Not every argument is worth winning. Sometimes we need to listen. Sometimes we need to say, I'm sorry. Sometimes you win by becoming the victim, by being wrong. Paul says sometimes it's okay to be cheated. Sometimes it's okay if you're a Christian to allow others to think about you in ways Sometimes you just need to think about somebody other than yourself. Unfortunately, this wasn't happening in Corinth. Men and women in the church were living lives that were acceptable to their culture, but not according to their faith. They did what seemed right. Look at verses 8 and 10. Paul gives them a warning that such behavior is unacceptable in the eyes of God. Instead, verse 8, you yourselves cheat and do wrong. And you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, he says. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Corinth was under Roman law, friends, and according to Roman law, a Roman citizen could not have a homosexual relationship with another Roman citizen. But they could with a foreigner or they could with a slave. A man could have a sexual relationship with a woman outside of his wife as well. Again, Corinth was a, a port city. So there were this, I mean, there were people coming and going from outside of the community all the time. Non-Roman citizens. This was not uncommon behavior. It was not uncommon for one man to covet another man's personal belongings or his wife or his power or his influence. It was uncommon for him, for one man to take another man to court and hope to position himself in such a way that he would take what this other man had earned. There were communal parties in which drunkenness and debauchery was the intent. If you wanted it, friends, you could find it, Paul is saying. That's the reality of Corinth. Not the most wholesome city, not the most wholesome place. And yet, it, as this was the culture of Corinth, it shouldn't have been the culture of the church in Corinth. Listen to what he says in verse 11, though. And that is what some of you were. Some of you were like that. Some of you were having immoral sexual relationships. Some of you were stealing. Some of you were living in drunkenness. If you were partying and you were in debauchery, some of you were coveting what wasn't yours. Some of you were greedy thirsty, hungry, and willing to do anything to get it. That's what some of you were, Paul says. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and by the Spirit of our God. Paul says to them, you were sexually immoral. Some of you were liars. Some of you were thieves. Some of you worshiped false gods. Some of you took others to court for small reasons. Some of you just did anything within your power to make yourself look good. To make yourself feel good. But then he says, God saved you from that lifestyle. God saved us, friends, from that lifestyle. Why do we want to run back to it? Sometimes when things don't go our way, what is our response? <laughs> Paul says that you were washed. This means that you were cleansed, you were baptized. It's only used one other time, friends, in the New Testament, and that's in Acts. Baptism is symbolic of Christ washing away our sins, is it not? You were washed, you were baptized. He says the next you were sanctified. This means separated, set apart, consecrated for the intention of dedication to be made holy. It's a process, friends, it doesn't happen overnight. Sanctification takes time, it takes dedication, it takes discipline, devotion, obedience on the part of the believer. God set you apart. He pulled you from the sin and death, not for you to return to it, friends, but to be set apart from it, to be made holy. Lastly, he says that you would be justified. This word literally means that you are made right in the eyes of God. In one moment, friends, when you profess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you are made right in the eyes of God. Like that. Nothing else is necessary. Nothing else is needed. You could die right there and receive eternal life of Jesus Christ. You are made right. And nothing can separate us. Romans tells us, friends. Paul says in Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. When God wraps his hands around you, he's not going to let go. You're justified. You've been forgiven. How has God made us right? Was it something that you did? Have you done something to, to earn that? That forgiveness? That holiness? What have you done? <laughs> you haven't done anything. You've received the free gift a forgiveness that's found in Jesus. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He did it, friends. You haven't done anything. You received the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He has forgiven you of all of your wrongdoings. Everything that you've done on this earth is forgiven. It's washed away. It's cleansed, friends. It's taken away. When you profess Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what you've done in your life, no matter the horrendous sin that you've committed, 
There is nothing that can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ, friends. No act, no devious deed. It's all forgiven. You are made right in the eyes of God the moment you say yes to Jesus. Not something you've earned, but something that was given. Is it too much to forgive others of the wrong that they've done to you? I mean, if God can forgive you, can you not forgive others? Can you not find it within your heart, within your soul to be wronged yourself? Some of you might be asking the question, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? I mean, if you know, pastor, how many times they've wronged me? <laughs> if you just knew what they've done, how many times? It's a good question. I don't know the answer to it. But I do know that uh, you're not alone by asking that question. Jesus' closest disciple, Peter, asked the same thing. How many times, Lord, do we forgive? And Jesus responded to him 77 times. Seven times 70. That's how many times you forgive. <laughs> he goes on, he, in the same breath, he tells this parable of a, of a man who owed his master 10,000 talents. One talent is, friends, 20 years wages of labor. This guy owed his master 10,000 talents. An impossible debt to pay off, is it not? The master is collecting his debts and he goes to this servant and says, hey, you need to pay up. Guy goes, hey, I can't do it. I can't do it. So, okay, you, your family, everything is in slavery. He goes, no, don't do it. Don't do it. I'll do anything. I'll do anything to pay off this debt. And the master sees this man's heart, his willingness, says, well, you know what? I forgive you of all your debts. Everything is forgiven. Clean slate. You think the man would be grateful, right? You think gratitude would be in his heart. But what happens is that he leaves that master's house and he finds one of his own servants that owes him how much? 100 denarii. A single denarii was what? A single day's wage. 100 days, pay that off. Pretty easy to pay off, if you think about it, compared to 10,000 talents. And how does he treat this man? <laughs> With vengeance. It's pretty telling story, is it not? One man offered forgiveness and the other offered anger. So often, friends, we have that choice. 
Do we forgive or do we hold the grudge? Do we offer forgiveness or judgment? Now, Christ has given us freedom, friends. He's delivered us from our debt. We don't owe anything anymore. Christ has forgiven us. Is it too much for us to offer that to someone else? Is it too much to offer that to our brothers and sisters in Christ? Father, we give you thanks for the day. We thank you for this opportunity that we have to gather together in this place and to worship you. I do thank you, Lord, for the forgiveness of sin. That it's something that I can't earn. I can't pay it off. But I can thank you for it. I pray, Lord, that if there's someone here today that has never experienced the freedom of forgiveness. I pray, Lord, that today they would experience your love, your grace, your mercy. It's only found through your son, Jesus Christ. They would find the freedom of a life that's free of the weight of sin. Lord, if there's someone here today that has never accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, and Lord, I pray that today they would admit that they are a sinner, that they would believe in Jesus Christ, and that they would confess Jesus as Savior and Lord. That they would receive that free gift of forgiveness, of eternal life. Father, if there's someone here today that is a believer that's struggling with resentment with anger with a spirit that's unwilling to forgive i pray that they would take this opportunity and use it to let go father lord we love you and we pray that during this time of invitation of response that we would respond in a way that would bring you honor and glory. That we would hear your still, small voice and respond with obedience. Lord Jesus, we love you and pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen. amen.